Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pasture Podcast. My name is Jesse Mayer, and I am your host. We are starting a brand new series this week titled Faith and Science, Is There a Conflict? And we can't do this podcast without our very own Salty Pasture, so please welcome Dr. Douglas Peak. Welcome. I appreciate all of you for listening, and I hope that you find not only your faith growing, but this podcast is helping you know why you believe what you believe, and also helping you understand the depth of intellectual uh, strength that your faith has and the historical context that also allows you to see the power of the faith with which you believe. So the Salty Pastor is all about you growing your faith so that you know what you believe, why you believe it, and you can really know, think for yourself, which the Bible calls wisdom. So on Tuesday, we started a brand new series, um, the Faith and Science series. Uh, And can you believe in both is kind of the question we're (laughs) really asking, right? And so for all you devoted listeners, we're doing a format change. Um, As Pastor Doug pointed out, there's times when you need to step back and kind of look at the big picture Mm -hmm. in order to more clearly understand. So on Tuesday, there was a whole lot going on. Um, where we <laughs> talked about some biblical principles. So I've got some questions. Yes. Lots of questions. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so I want to break this down. I want to go step by step. First, I want to know more about the theory that started um, in the late, te- late late 1800s and that said there was a war between faith and science. So let's start there. What exactly was this theory? <laughs> well, it was called the conflict theory, and it was a propositional truth or postulate that a guy talked about named William Draper, where he wrote a couple of books and basically was kind of saying faith and science are opposite. They're at war with one another. That was actually the name of, of his second book. And he, he was trying to really push this as a paradigm at the time. So w- where did that come from? Well, in 1874, you know, uh, William Draper wrote that first book, and it was called The History of the Conflict. And what's really interesting is not that he was a big scientist or anything, but what he wanted to do is he wanted to go back throughout history based on what they knew at the time and try to make a point that faith and science have been in conflict with each other forever. You know, and it's a big problem and so forth. Well, as I shared on Tuesday, no modern scholar or historian accepts that to be the case at all. Uh, quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. But what he did do is he went back and he said, well, look at what the church, he, he had a lot of hostility, I think, towards the church. Uh, at that time, it was a Roman Catholic church and then the Anglican church, which was the Church of England. And he pointed out, well, look how they treated, you know, Galileo, you know, and he was under house arrest his whole life and so forth and all this kind of stuff. Just goes to show you how people of religion or religious people, people of faith, you know, are irrational and they believe in the Bible. And, and so he said a lot of those things. The problem is, is what he didn't do is he didn't actually share or be honest about the actual conflict. And what's really sad today is in history, they're not honest about that at all. And as a matter of fact, the conflict had nothing to do with religion versus science. The conflict was uh, a Ptolemaic 
perspective of science or a theory of science and Galileo's position that Copernicus was right. So for at the time, the Catholic Church. Now, I'm not Catholic. I don't have any dog in the hunt to defend Catholicism, <laughs> Catholicism whatever. I've been very fair, I think, historically about its successes and failures. But, the, but if you're going to use something to prove a point, you have to be honest about what it is. And what's really interesting is Galileo wrote a letter to uh, Benedetto Castilla or C- uh, Castilla. I'm, he, he's Italian, not Spanish, so the double L, I believe, is pronounced. And he wrote this in 1613. Okay. And in the letter, you can go and read the letter today. And I want to give you a quote from this letter just to show you what he says. In the letter in the beginning, he's, ta- he's writing it so that the queen and uh, one of the head uh, cardinals or even Pope himself uh, are thinking about this. And here's a quote. In regard to the first general point of the most serene ladyship, meaning the queen, it seems to me very prudent of her to propose and of you to concede and to agree that the Holy Scriptures, meaning the Bible, can never lie or be in error and that its declarations are absolutely and involubly true. Hmm. So what, what Galileo was arguing is that the Bible is true and accurately represents what I'm proposing, he says, the problem isn't the Bible. The problem is your understanding of the Bible. And that, and that to me is really a critical point because that totally blows up the whole notion that there was this big war conflict. And what atheists today, otherwise known as naturalists, is what they call themselves, uh, try to postulate, and what our, we'll get into this in a moment, uh, our culture is adopted is this notion that the two are antithetical and there was a war and and the atheist won, you know. Uh, But that's just not true because that didn't happen in Galileo's case. The the second thing that he mentioned and talked about, which was a part of his contemporary, because he he published this book in 1874, the first one, and Darwin's Origin of the Species came out in 1859. So that was 15 years prior to this. And very quickly... The scientific community in Britain at that time adopted the basic tenets of the origin of the species. But what the origin of species that that Darwin wrote and postulated is nothing like the theory that you're taught today. Uh, And we'll talk about that later in the series. But what's really interesting is when it was published, he said this. He goes, look, science, he goes, I'm a scientist and science has nothing to do with Christ. And what he's trying to say is it has, it has no position on religion. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And then he says this, except insofar as the habit of scientific research makes a man cautious in admitting evidence. So what he's saying is that uh, Christians do a good job of being really careful with the evidence. You know, they want to make sure that it is scientifically proven fact. So that was a big deal to him. And if you go and read the, the wiki even today, and the wiki, you know, when you go and you read Wikipedia and stuff like that on the internet, everybody knows that Wikipedia is a very left-leaning, you know, group. And it, it gets out there pretty far. And even in the wiki, the wiki says this. 
Darwin still believed that God was the ultimate lawgiver and later reconciled that at the time he was convinced of the existence of God as a first cause and deserved to be called a theist. So I bring both of those up to show that uh, William Draper's point uh, was completely false and it's been discredited over and over again. So why is uh, this conflict theory becomes so popular in the media. Well, the media loves conflict theory because they love conflict because that creates drama, right? right. <laughs> and when you have drama, you have something to report on. You know, how many would watch the news if the news started with, it's a beautiful sunny day in Idaho. Nothing is going on and all is at peace. All is happy and <laughs> the world is... People would go... And turn it off. So people love conflict. And, and originally, I think that there was an issue that as media be got going is that they wanted, you know, conflict and because it creates a little bit of drama and there's a side and they could be neutral. And but that has changed because today the media is the number one advocate for the conflict theory in today's world. And the reason why is I believe their postmodern mentality when people ask about postmodernism, uh, postmodernism is a way of thinking and it postulates that there is no absolute or objective truth. And so it's all about narratives. It's all about stories. And so where this has really taken the most powerful uh, effect is in journalism schools over the last 30 and 40 years. And so journalists are no longer taught to be neutral or objective. They are taught to find a story that will generate views. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to build an audience because it, is, it become, has become money driven. And if you're good in the media and you get a lot of viewers, you make a lot of money. You know, you're, the money you make is directly related to how many people watch your show. And so because advertisers won't pay, you know, and they pay more, they won't pay if nobody watches and they'll pay more if millions and millions of people watch. Right. So, so the incentive there is to create an audience based on fiscal, you know, remuneration, which I don't have a problem with that. The problem with that, though, is that the incentive is in direct conflict with objective truth. It's within direct conflict with wanting to know what is true. And this is why the term today, fake news, has become so popular, is because everybody speaks narratives. They don't speak in an objective or neutral frame of reference anymore. Now, the origin of, their, the origin of this love affair with the conflict theory and their postmodern way of thinking can be traced back to 1924. And in 1924, the Tennessee legislature passed a law that said it's illegal to teach anything in a public school that contradicts the divine creation and its order taught in the Bible. So they passed a law that said that. Now, uh, a local businessman by the name of George uh, Rapelier, he conspired with uh, Scopes, who was a high school biology teacher, to get charged with a violation of this new law. And after his arrest, the pair enlisted the aid of the American Civil, uh, the ACLU, to organize a defense. So they had planned to get arrested 
and charged with this offense or violation of this new law. And so Charles Darrow, excuse me, represented Scopes on behest of the ACLU. He was a famous defense lawyer and he was a key member, leader in the ACLU. And in the actual trial between uh, the state of Tennessee and Scopes was it was a challenge between modernists and fundamentalists. And this is very important to understand. Modernists didn't see a direct conflict between the theory of evolution and the belief that God created the heavens and the earth. Fundamentalists, on the other hand, did. They saw it as a conflict. And so in the original trial, it was... Uh, a conflict between modernists, which were people of faith, and fundamentalists, with, which were people of faith. So isn't that interesting? Because that is not the perception that people have today at all. Right. But what happened is this, is that a fundamentalist, uh, he was a very, very popular guy. And um, uh, what was his name again? Uh, Bar- Bar- uh, William Jennings Bryant. That was his name. Yeah. Okay, so William Jennings Bryant, he was a three-time presidential candidate for the United States on the Democratic ticket. So he was a Democrat, and he was a big fundamentalist. And so he saw this as an opportunity politically to shine his star. And Charles Darrow, of course, said, well, maybe not. Now, this trial was actually dramatized in a play in 1955 called Inherit the Wind. And the authors of the play said, this is not a historical account. It's not meant to be historically accurate. However, Inherit the Wind has been made into movies and this play has become the accepted history of what happened, even though it is not even remotely close to what happened. Now, the reason why it was allowed to propagate a false representation of history is because this play is because the Southern Christian faith uh, seemed uh, to be a little bit backward by a lot of other faith driven people in America that lived in the north. And this was a holdover from the Civil War. And there was a theological debate because all the abolitionists, which originally helped form the Republican Party, because the Republican Party was formed, the party of Lincoln, for one purpose and one purpose only initially, and that was to end slavery. And so it had a tremendous uh, influence from the abolitionist movement. And the abolitionist movement was unequivocally Christian and driven in churches in the North. And they, they felt that the fundamentalist theological position was incorrect. So there was this theological debate going among faith people, and it got pushed over into the court. And I don't know if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, don't take conflicts between yourself and the church and push it into the court, because when you do, you're not going to get justice. Right. And that's exactly what happened here. Anyway, they didn't get real justice because it became a political thing. And this is why I've said, oh, is it when the church jumps on a political bandwagon? It doesn't matter what if it's fundamentalism or it's progressivism. It doesn't matter if the church jumps both feet onto a political bandwagon. It never ends well. 
It always has very detrimental effect, particularly to the purity of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that as a person who, like myself, who's committed to the faith and the gospel, that that doesn't influence what's happening out there. I hope it does. And it also allows me and people who do what I do to comment on it, you know, so that when people propagate things in maybe a ultra conservative way that are unbiblical, I can call that out, which I do. When people uh, push progressive ideologies that are unbiblical, I can call those out Uh, because I'm not a politician. I'm a God guy. Right. right. And that's where I, I put my emphasis. So the reason why the media globbed onto this and it kind of became accepted is because there wasn't a lot of pushback initially about the trial because a lot of people of faith in the north were like, OK, I'm glad because it exposed the absurdity of this theological argument that we're having. Does that make sense? Yes. And so so that's how it got into the culture. And then since then, you know, in the 60s and 70s, uh, this movement of the neo-Marxist movement, the postmodern movements, and then ultimately the naturalist movement, which is atheism, globbed onto it and used it as a primary way in which to recruit kids to in, in indoctrinate children through the public educational system, not in scientific discovery, which I'm super big on, but in naturalism. So that is where it really kind of took off. So I find it really interesting that basically this this initial law basically just became kind of like a, a rallying point over these religious debates, basically. Yeah. It never was really about what the law was about. It just turned into a big political hoop-de-la. Yeah. Oh, and it was uh, massive. Which was backed by some religious differences between yeah. fundam- uh, fundamentalists and, and, and modernists. modernists. And so it's interesting that, like you said, anytime the church starts getting out of their depth or jumping into different waters yeah. than they should really be focused on is right. when things get worse, really. Because yeah. from that, it's propagated all these additional cultural phenomenon, including, you know, even false histories because it was meant to be a play. And then everyone went, oh, this is exactly what happened because I saw it in the play. It's like when you watch documentaries and they're like, this is based on a true story. But then all you see is, oh, well, this all happened exactly like this movie portrayed. And everybody believes it. And it's not even remotely close to the truth of what happened. And, And all this tells me over and over again is that the power of redemption in Jesus Christ that a human being experiences is one of the most powerful thing that a human being will ever experience in their life. So consequently, because it is so powerful, right? Guess what? Everybody wants to manipulate that to their own gain. So when lots of people come to Christ, when lots of people start following and everything starts to improve, right? Family life improves, love and marriages improve, education improves, economy improves. And so people who want to use that for their own uh, Agenda, and we talked about this in Galatians in our, in our last series, that there are people who had an agenda over the Galatians for their own good and not the good of the gospel. What happens is they try to manipulate it, you know, and you see that today. I mean, even in the most recent uh, presidential debate or, or uh, uh, campaign, that's the word I'm looking for, you see how people are using God to get people to vote for their candidate. Yeah. 
which I, I found I, real interesting. You know, I'm a man of faith, or yeah. here's a picture of me holding a Bible, or yeah. I go to church. It's like they use it all the time, and they'll also use any pluses or minuses associated with yeah. it. It's you know, and the politicians do that all the time too. It's well, the previous uh, previous president left me with a big mess. But all the yeah. good things that have happened because of him, I'm taking credit yeah. for. That was my. That's that was I, me. And, that was me. I did they, that. It does. It happens on both sides. It's yeah. always well. The other ones did the bad stuff, but all the good stuff that's happening is because <laughs> of what yeah. I did. And you know, this is a side note. And just like with science and naturalism and theism, I think it's really important to have a healthy understanding of what those are, and we'll get into that in a moment. But in politics, it's so important to understand what politics is, and you know, politicians have one incentive, right? And that's to get elected. And so therefore, what is the primary incentive for a politician is to tell people what they want to hear, hear right? And so then you have a media that is trying to manipulate people into believing what they want to hear. So why is it so critical to have a strong faith? And I say this over and over and over again so that you know how to think for yourself and you're not manipulated by the media in any way, shape or form. And then when a candidate you have to vote for one, you're not voting for them based on emotion or celebrity worship or belief that they're going to save the universe. That's all absurd. You know, I mean, the president of the United States is a janitor. Okay, the president gets to get this straight. He's a or she is a janitor. They're supposed to execute the laws that come from the legislature and figure out a way to dispense the money. I mean, they at best are an administrative assistant, but our society has turned them into messiahs, messiahs and celebrities. And and I don't want to you know, you're the leader of the free world. And I'm like, no, he's not. No, she's not. You are not. The American people are the leaders of the free world. We are the United States of America. This country belongs to the people. The whole point in its inception, now I'm going on a political rant here. You've got me going. Is the whole point of its inception is that the gov is that we don't worship monarchs. We don't worship celebrities. We, we left Britain for this purpose. <laughs> we left Britain for this purpose. You know, so the country belongs to the people. That's why it says we are a government of the, the people, people for the people so whenever we get involved in a political campaign where we're worshiping the candidate we put all of our faith in a candidate that's not so good lucy that's no. not so good <laughs> that's a throwback <laughs> so anyway well what so just kind of continue on what we've been talking about yeah. where so we we went through this whole thing in tennessee um they they kind of yeah pumped up this conflict theory based on on the legislation that had happened there um where are we seeing the conflict theory the most today well first i think you see it predominantly in the media uh, and celebrity culture you see it a lot and but the people who are the the priests of it are naturalists and naturalists are commonly we know them as atheists but they call themselves naturalists. Uh, another word that they use to describe themselves is materialists. And what they mean by that is they, we just don't live in a material world, but human beings are material persons. And when they, what they mean by that, when they say you're a material person, they mean that there is no you that is you. 
You don't have a soul. There is no sentience about you. There's no consciousness that exists outside of neurons firing. You're simply chemical neurons firing. There's nothing beyond that. There's no depth to you. Yeah, there's no depth what? to you. Yeah, your personality is simply a predetermined neuro response to certain circumstances that you have lived through growing up. And so if someone did, had the exact same situation and exact same chemistry as you, they'd be exactly like you. So there's nothing unique or special about you. And that that's what naturalists believe. And they are the ones that the media celebrates and brings to the forefront as celebrities. You know, you have uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. You have Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. You have a Dillahunty. You have the cos on YouTube. You have the cosmic skeptic. You, you have a new guy, uh, rational rationality rules or rational rules or something like that. I can't think of his name. You have a number of other famous uh, Sam Harris. Uh, Bill Maher is really big on this. Uh, Pendulet from Penn and Teller. And they write lots of books and they write, you know, and what's really interesting is the one thing about almost all of their books is not a postulate of what they believe, except for Sam Harris. Sam Harris, you know, I think is probably one of the more intellectually honest because he, he, he just doesn't deconstruct and criticize religion and tell you how bad it is. What he says, okay, here's what I actually, this is the con the contrary point. This is what we stand for. And the, uh, the, a lot of them don't do that because when you read that is when it gets really scary. Right. That's when, that's when people start reading that and go, holy smokes, that's what you guys actually believe then. So you see it a lot today in the media and it's enamored with that. And because the media wants to generate narratives, they want to generate people watching them. And so the media actually believes that human beings are very easily manipulated and they believe what they're told. They're sheep. And the goal of the salty pastor is not to tell you what to believe, but to help you realize what's going on and how to think for yourself. So how do we unravel this falsehood of the conflict theory? How do we fight oh it? My. How much time do we have left before uh, this is over? <laughs> this is long. So I got, what, five minutes, ten minutes? Let something me, like that, yeah. Let yeah. me introduce a construct, and here's what it is, and that is, first, you have to understand the influence of postmodern thinking, okay? You have to really get into that and understand that it is a way of thinking. It's not so much a conclusion, but it's a way in which you process information. And if you process information and you think in a way as a deconstructionist, uh, then it really helps one of the positions. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Then there are basically three positions out there once you understand the influence of postmodern thinking. First, there's science, okay? And now what is science as a discipline? What is it actually? When you go back and you read and understand science in its purest form is similar to what Thomas Kuhn talked about. He was, the, uh, he, uh, he was a scientist and he became the history uh, his, uh, a scientist. He studied not only science, but the history of how it developed. And he wrote a book called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is a really great book to read. And he talks about how science in its purest form is simply the capacity to discover how the puzzle works how this material world works. So we have to use material items, meaning equipment or constructs to test the material world. 
And then what we do is we ruthlessly challenge our assumptions and we ruthlessly challenge our conclusions. So we're not going to accept anything as factual in this material world scientifically until it can be proven and proven again. And then once that happens, we're going to build on that. So science when you describe it that way, you can see why I personally, if you know me, am a big fan of science, right? I'm a big fan of that. I'm a Absolutely. big fan of that approach. And I believe as we dig into this, what we're going to find out is science, it doesn't really matter if you're a Christian when you practice science. It doesn't really matter if you're an atheist when you practice science because you're simply following the rules of science. It's a tool, right? Now, when a Christian comes to it and does it, this is going to be the salty, controversial thing of the day. When a Christian comes to it, they have a higher probability of conducting more accurate science. Hmm. A atheist has a less probability of being accurate in their science. Why is that? <laughs> well, because the whole point of science is complete objectivity, right? And so if in the back of your mind, you believe that there is a God who created this and it's going to point to something bigger and better, you're going to want to be more accurate. Like, I want to make sure my math's right before I go on to the next level of math. That's a really big deal because it doesn't benefit me to shade it to get to the next thing, right? So now, are there Christian scientists that have made mistakes and shaded stuff? Absolutely, because they didn't get their bias out of it. But on the other hand, an atheist has a predetermined bias already, and his predetermined bias is very narrow. And so he or she is less probable to conduct. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's less probable because of science in and of itself. Well, it kind of reminds me. So um, I was listening to a podcast, and they were breaking down the Stanford prison experiment. Mm -hmm. And that scientist i put that in air quotes yeah. for those of you who aren't watching on our youtube yeah. channel um he came in with a pretty strong bias, bias. in the way he yeah. set up the experiment yes he already had pre-scheduled media to come and take footage and photos of mm -hmm. what he thought was going to be happening before it had even started and so he doesn't it's not even called an experiment, experiment anymore, anymore in no. the in the papers that reference it because Correct. the the method the scientific method was not followed there was not a lack of um biases it was not objective he basically yeah. put them in a very specific thing he told them to do certain things to get the outcome he wanted, wanted. to see yeah and so it's similar to what you're saying is there's it's not impossible but there's a lot of scientists that come in having a predetermined bias looking for a specific answer to prove their bias yeah right? and it's getting really bad this is another particularly in the social sciences uh a guy went back and he did a, a longitudinal study of all the of many of the different studies that are going on in the social sciences you know sociology and psychology and so forth and all all of these types of things and they found that well over 50 percent of all the studies are not scientific studies at all, but it just creates this culture. They, they publish something that, that reinforces their bias, their confirmation bias, and then someone else references it, and then someone else references it, and then someone else references it, and then just like the inherit the wind play, it becomes accepted fact. And my opinion is that 
okay, that's bad for science. That's not good for science. Right. Right. And that's how we come up with really bad ideas, you know. So uh, science. So you have to understand what science is and what it's intended to be. The second thing you have to do is you have to understand what is theism and what is theism trying to do and what does theism do in regards to how you practice science. Uh, I, um, we're going to go into that more in depth because we're kind of running out of time today. But then there's what is known as naturalism and naturalism is atheism and atheism tries to use science to prove its religious point. I want everybody to understand. Atheism is not a rational conclusion of science. Even though Neil Grass Tyson tells you it is, Richard Dawkins tells you it is, Sam Harris tells you it is, they are wrong because they are making philosophical assumptions based on their scientific discipline now are they good at science yes but as everybody tells you they're horrible at philosophy Mm. and the thing is is that the the issue of theism and the issue of atheism are in the world of philosophy and logic and and uh history and those are the intellectual foundations for whether you're a theist or a atheist, right? Right. And so consequently, what's happening today, and this is what we're really going to dig into, is that it takes a whole lot more religious faith to be an atheist and believe in science than it takes for a theist to believe in science. Hmm. So I'd like everybody to really chew on that, that when people who are scientists who jump over into atheism and try to use science to prove atheism, then what they're doing is they are making religious claims, not rational scientific claims. Because science in and of itself, and this is what all theists agree, and most intellectually honest atheists agree in this regard. You never hear about them because the media doesn't like them because they're not sensational and say inflammatory things. But what happens is they even say this, and that is, well, philosophically, logically, it's impossible for science to conclude anything that exists outside of the material world because science as a tool is only designed for the material world. It's kind of like, it's kind of like this. Say, what's your car designed to do? It's, dr- it's designed to drive on the ground, the pavement, right? So what you're trying to do is say, based on what my car is designed to do, I'm going to postulate how it flies in the air. O- okay, it, you, can't, you can't do that because the car doesn't fly. Right. You know, a plane is something that moves through the air quickly, but the whole mechanics of flight are so different, they're out of this world compared to a vehicle. Now, some people would say, oh, that's not true. They both have engines in them. (laughs) And you're like, okay, that's the least common denominator, but they're both powered. You're right. They have tires on them. They have tires on them. Yes, you're right. (laughs) But you see that. And so that's what these guys who are naturalists are doing with science, you know, and it's just totally ridiculous. So what I really want to do is help push everybody to realize 
just how to think for themselves and understand the construct. And that is, first of all, we live in the sea of postmodernism. So this water is our, the air we breathe and it affects, it affects everything. Then there are three positions and, or, or three uh, postulates. One, science itself, atheism slash naturalism, and then there is theism. And so the real question is, where does a conflict lie in, within science? Is science in greater conflict with theism or is it in greater conflict with naturalism? And my position is there is a lot greater conflict with natural or atheism between science than there is between theism and science. Well, I'm excited for you to dive deeper into that throughout the course of this series. I'm really excited for Sunday's sermon because you're probably going to start diving into that even then. So we're just excited that you guys have joined us. We are at 799 subscribers on YouTube. Yes. Please help us. We just, <laughs> we will stop nagging you about it once we hit the thousand. We'll even do something special when we hit the thousand. <laughs> just tell all of your friends, get your your sub, your work emails yeah. signed up on YouTube. Just help us get to that number so that we can really expand the yeah, reach. Text and one of your friends, just one friend, our YouTube channel. You know, not the podcasts, but the YouTube channel itself where maybe you listen or watch the podcast. One friend and say, please subscribe to this. We're trying to get more subscribers. Yes. So we really appreciate you guys joining us. Hopefully you're joining us on Sunday, either in person or online for the sermon. And we will see you then here at Foothills Christian Church in beautiful Boise, Idaho. Right. Blessings, everybody.